Creating a vision and goals and then taking action to realize them is one of the most important and highly satisfying things we do in life. Whether we're leading an organization, we're raising a family, or improving our own performance or effectiveness. And yet, how often do we place as much focus on the person that we're being while pursuing these goals as in the pursuit itself? We don't have to make a choice between being the type of person we admire and getting these important results. That's a fool's choice. My friend and colleague Donna Zajon has a new book out that speaks directly to this false choice. The book's title is, Who Do You Want to Be on the Way to What You Want? And I think the title says it all. We can attend to both results and our beingness. So pull up a chair or take us with you on your hike as we dive into the topic and we'll leave you with practices that are meant to support you in becoming the person you want to be. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm Leanne Mallory, your podcast host and the founder of Rise Leaders, which is a leadership and coaching strategy firm. I created this podcast over two years ago as a way to share some of the approaches, tools, and practices that my clients find most valuable. The guests that I interview include some of the exemplary leaders I've actually worked with, some authors and other experts on culture and leadership. Be sure to check out the show notes for resources. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best way is through my website at rise-leaders.com. I loved this conversation with Donna Zajon. Donna is part of the dynamic duo behind the Center for the Empowerment Dynamic, which is now an ecosystem around the drama triangle and the empowerment dynamic models. The ecosystem includes two books, which were authored by David, a weekly blog that Donna and David co-author, plus trainings on the core teachings. And then in March, Donna's new book, Who Do You Want to Be on the Way to What You Want, was released. And with that comes a new training program specifically for coaches. Donna is a master certified coach and has been training coaches in the TED or Empowerment Dynamic Framework since 2012. She was honored in 2017 by the Washington State International Coach Federation as Coach of the Year for the Advancement of Coaching Excellence. She lives on Bainbridge Island in Washington, where she loves tooling around on her electric bike, engaging with great books and movies, devouring dark chocolate, and sipping microbrews. Sounds like a woman after my own heart. Enjoy the conversation. Who do we want to be in the midst of pursuing our goals, raising our families, developing healthy relationships, and in all ways of contributing? This is the question that my guest, Donna Zajon, is asking in her new book. And Donna, I can already tell this is going to be a highlight of my week. So thank you so much for agreeing to be with me today. So let's get your voice in, in here in the room. 
Yeah, thank you, Leanne. So good to see you again. And I'm looking forward to these uh, juicy questions and dialoguing with you today. I am as well. I am as well. So I want to set some context first uh, for all of the listeners out there that this is the third book that's on this general topic. So I think it's been 15 years since you and David, your life and business partner, started writing books and articles and doing mm-hmm. trainings on the drama triangle and the empowerment dynamic. Has it yes, been it has 15, been 15 years, years, really? Yes. Oh my gosh. David's first book, uh, The uh, Power of Ted, The Empowerment Dynamic, came out in the spring of 2016. All right. And was our first book that really resonated with people about understanding their victim consciousness and how to get out of that into more an empowering way of thinking and relating to ourselves and to the world. And I'm finding more and more people, Donna, actually are at least familiar with the drama triangle if they've done any sort of family therapy. Yes. Um, So this is a topic that people are often familiar with. But what you all did is you created the antidote to the drama triangle, which is the game changer. That was that's the empowerment dynamic. And I will say that I don't I don't think that I do any coaching or any leadership development Mm. program where I don't bring this topic in because it's Mm. so sticky People find themselves in these situations. They can see in their life where all of this shows up. And then the empowerment dynamic, like I said, has just been a game changer. I wonder if it would be okay to just take 90 seconds and explain those frameworks real quick. I think that that would be really important, Donna, because we're not going to take the time to do that in our conversation because the book that you've written Mm. is quite different. There are some ways that it's the same. It's it's told through story, but it's really different than the first two books. So maybe you can give us kind of a general overview. Yeah, thank you, Leanne. Happy to. So, Dr. Stephen Cartman in the late 60s, early 70s, created what he calls and is now quite well known around the globe as the Cartman Drama Triangle. And what he described is the three ways or energies that we human beings relate to something we don't want, don't like, something we're in conflict with. And he said, the first thing is we disengage. We think we don't have the options to get what we want in life. And he called that the victim role. So there's always a problem when we're in that victim role. There's something out there that's disturbing us. And he named that as the persecutor. And when the dynamic between the victim and the persecutor gets set up, he said, there's always a third role that steps in. You know what that one is, Leanne? (laughs) It's the rescuer. The rescuer, that part (laughs) of us that wants to be loved, that wants to be helpful, that wants to please. So when those three roles get going and they're all reactive in nature, what I mean reactive is a reactive fear based to something we don't want, we don't like in the moment. And they're different aspects to us. They are the lesser parts of us, we would Uh say. What David and I have done in his original book, An Epiphany, was that we have the better angels in us. We have the higher goodness, the innate goodness in us. And And he named the antidotes, as you said, the antidote to the victim is that we're creators. We have innate essence of our goodness and we can create what we want in our life. The persecutor often blames and puts down and has this fiery direct energy. The opposite to that is the challenger. The intention is to learn and grow and develop. It's the truth teller in us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the truth teller in the room who speaks up 
with this challenging energy to pull everyone up. Yep. The rescuer shifts to the coach. When we see others as whole and capable of solving their own issues, of taking charge of their own life, and now the coach in us, and it doesn't have to be a professional coach, but the coach in us really has the skill of listening being curious and inquiring into what is it that wants to emerge here for all of us to grow and develop. So that shift from victim to creator, persecutor to challenger, rescuer to coach makes this continuum Mm -hmm. and it gives people the choice. Wow, where do I want to be on this continuum? So I offer that as a very quick and brief look at these different roles. And we're all about the empowerment dynamic. How do we bring that out in ourselves and and take responsibility for being our best and being in relationship with others to help bring that out in them. It's a lifetime work of living more in the empowerment dynamic. Yes. Because we still get triggered. We still get upset. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I, you know, I really try to impress on anyone that I'm speaking to about this, whether it's a a client or a group of people, which is, it comes up every week, but you know, that just because we understand the model and we know it and we've worked on it doesn't mean we aren't going to find ourselves in the drama triangle because we will. And I think um, what I also really loved about this book, Donna, particularly at the end, you talk a lot about giving ourselves grace and seeing the drama as a gift. And we'll get to that, but it is an ongoing piece of work. We never get there. And I think that that's that's even a place to rest, just to know, oh, it's not someplace that we arrive. Mm -hmm. We keep working on it. We keep, quote, getting better. And I might say we keep becoming more fulfilled in life Uh because we're able to to notice when we're in these unresourceful places and to make the shift, but we never completely get rid of it. We don't. And you mentioned, though, that you share this work with almost everyone, your clients, when you're speaking. And so why is it so memorable? People tell us it's sticky. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about that for a minute and wonder and get let's get curious about why that is. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would say they're simple. It's kind of a simple explanation. I don't think it took two minutes for me to explain that. Right. And now, 15 years later, I can tell you that universally people say, oh, I know which one I am, or oh, I know which one I default to. Oh, I remember doing that this morning in traffic Right. when somebody sped around me and cut me off. There is a stickiness to it because it's so simple to Mm -hmm. see it. The second thing I would say is, is that Dr. Cartman's brilliance is that he named archetypal features in who we are as human beings. So people mm-hmm. resonate with it really quickly. And that's one of the keys then. It's so important for us, isn't it, Leanne, to normalize this phenomena? Yes. Oh, yes. everyone does this. And that is such comfort to get that, oh, we do that. So I think those are two ways that I have found that why that's so sticky. What else have you noticed of why it's people remember it Um, and it's useful? I I think it's visceral as what you just mentioned. But I also think that as people learn about it, and I always ask people to start by thinking about a situation that Mm. they wished would have gone differently and that they played a key role in. So they have to be 
in it, you know, and even better if the situation is still going on or if it was really recent. Um, but we, we start there because everybody has that situation and we remember how it felt to be there. So it is a felt sense. It's visceral. We can remember we, we just remember it that way. That's a beautiful way to, to introduce it is to ask them to recall uh, a time that they went reactive. And sometimes the most minute, it doesn't have to be some yeah. big explosion uh, so that you can recall that. And as soon as you recall it, you feel that emotion. You do feel it. And, and so that is another way to understand uh, why um, integrated and archetypal they are these roles name this universal reaction. Yep. So why and how do we use this is to what we have discovered and what the coaches that take our courses and the trainers that take our certifications say is that it awakens the inner observer in us. You know, there's a lot of people, Leanne, that don't wake up every day like we do and think about human development and think about <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people doing work, you know, getting through life. And so as change agents, I know it's part of my desire and my time on this earth is to translate complex ideas simply so they are accessible to people who do want to do better, who do mm-hmm. want to grow. I firmly believe every single human being wants to grow and have their best self facing outward, as well as inward in the way they relate right. to themselves. So awakening the inner observer is a giant leap to be able to self-observe. But again, we must say constantly self-observe with compassion yes with laughter oh my gosh there i go again there i go again here i am (laughs) yeah doing that thing again yeah exactly i want to just pause here and say it's one of the things so i listened to the book and um you just as david's uh two earlier books there are characters it's told as a story what i really appreciated was the humility this inner observer that the main character, Sophia, we get an inside look at her inner observer. Yes. It gave it legs for me. Mm. You know, so in the book, she starts by coaching someone. Yes, she and does. And you learn about some of the models and tools through that. But then as she goes off and reflects and she goes to the, um, to the beach, we continue to see how Sophia Um, deepens and reflects and goes through her daily practices of journaling and mindfulness and all of that. And we really see how all of that is integrated. And I think you just did a beautiful job with the invitation for us just to settle into the story and receive that without it being academic. Mm. Well, thank you. As you've mentioned, the two previous books are stories. So I started with a clear desire to write a story and I also wanted more feminine energy in this story. Yeah. And that's why the core characters um, of Sophia is a master coach of many years, just had her 60th birthday. And uh, <laughs> she is in the dialogue with a younger woman who is a CEO and a very hard-nosed. The reason she's calling Sophia is because her team is giving her very low marks. And as that conversation gets started, 
I wanted to create a window into the psyche and the internal conversation of a professional coach as she is coaching. And so the the decision was to write from a narrative point of view so the reader could both follow the conversation Sophia is having as she shares and teaches and coaches her very headstrong client. But also she pauses and she goes, oh, there I go again doing <laughs> this. Wow, do I identify with RJ, the, the uh, CEO? And so thank you. I um, wrote with an unfolding openness, allowing some divine guidance and that epiphany of being able to do both the reader understanding and hearing the inner dialogue as she coached. Um, I was really excited when I hit upon that possibility as what I wanted to do in this story. So I'm glad it resonated with you. Yeah, there were several levels of the book. And even as you talked about RJ, just how she contacts you, or I'm sorry, I, I always think of, I say you and it's Sophia, so you, you may be Sophia. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we write contacts, about ourselves, don't we? Yeah, we do. So she contacts Sophia because she wants to kind of fix the problem out there in her yes. organization. Yes. And Sophia insists that we start with RJ. Yes. And let's and she was kind of surprised. Well, what do you mean? I need coaching. And that is so also so common. So common. It's, yes. Yeah. I, I'm hiring you, Sophia, to fix my team. What do you mean you want to start with me? Yeah, right. you know, so it's a basic concept that we face in professional and organizational work, don't yep. we? Yeah. Yes. And and Sophia um had a very bad experience in the very first chapter of the book of spending a year in her heart and soul. Uh, being asked by a CEO to invest in a very large coaching program. And as soon as there was some problem with the finances, that CEO cancels the whole program without even talking to Sophia. She finds out about it through secondhand. You know, so Sophia has a wound, so to speak, with yep. can she trust her clients? Can she trust to invest herself in this big work? And doesn't every one of us as coaches have that quiet little secret and worry can I really invest myself here? If we've coached very long at a while, we have that worry. I think so. And I think, Donna, actually, I think most of us have, whether we're coaches or something else. I just finished a 12-week program on the artist way where, you know, we're going weekly asking ourselves questions. It's basically like putting ourselves out there. Are we going to put our work and what we care about out into the world. Uh And so I think there are various versions of, um, you know, do I want to invest myself this way? Is it worth it? Here, I made this for you. Do you like it? Do you like me? And and we're all, I think we're all doing that at some level, including coaches. You know, here's, here's what I really care about. And am I willing to like keep putting myself out there if we've had a wound? Exactly. And I mean, that's really one of the core concepts that I'm offering here in the book as we get to know Sophia, certainly as we get to know another, a whole host of other characters. But it's Sophia who really um, wants to fully live in her creator essence. Mm -hmm. So remember the positive aspect, the positive role to the victim in the empowerment dynamic is that we call the creator. 
And we've offered for years that there's two core questions to ask ourselves to shift into that creator role. What do I want? And what's mine to do? What's my responsibility? In this book, we're offering more into the head asks those questions, right? If we, if we think about it, it's our intellect that says, wow, what do I want? You know, very goal-oriented, which we are in the Western culture, and what's mine to do? Great questions. Mm-hmm. What I'm offering here is a second, deeper, more heart-centered question is, and who do I want to be on the way to what I want? What is this essence? Mm -hmm. What is this spiritual part of me that is being called to the my beingness wherever it is I land? And that's what Sophia learns in her journey is is that, uh, yes, she wants to coach, have great clients, have great impact on the world. But it's this beingness that is the title of the book. And I think really resonated with you as you were it sharing. Did. It did. I've, I've been using that question a lot, even like starting off a new year. It's like, who is the person that I'm becoming? Mm. And it feels to me like whether we're setting goals, whatever that we're doing, that's the umbrella. Because we, we can be reactive or reacting to all the things that are out there, all the shoulds. Here's what I should do. Here's what I should learn. Who's, here's mm-hmm. how I should be showing up. But it, it, it's all under the umbrella of the person that I'm becoming. And so everything, yes. I think, you know, that, that's a kind of a pejorative statement. But, you know, most things would fall underneath that umbrella and we would make our choices in life. Does this support who I'm becoming? And, and I love I love the title of the book because that's what you're saying. Yeah. You're asking us to answer that question. You know, and if we don't have a sense of that essence of who we want to be as the journey through life, how we show up, our values, our listening, how we hold others, if we don't have that as our foundation and we simply go with, what do I want and engage our intellect and become goal-oriented? which again is wonderful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We establish goals. You established a goal when you created your podcast here. But what I've discovered in coaching lots of people over these 20 years now as a coach is that goals alone, without being tethered into this beingness, can activate and trigger us into an inner dreaded drama triangle in that we see those goals as a persecutor. We can. Wow, did I make it? Was it good enough? Was the goal big enough? Did I do it fast enough? Did I do it like someone else? And so, the goal setting can actually become a persecutor. And in our own mind, we feel victim to that. And if that really gets revved up and we get a lot of emotion around that, then the part of us that's the inner rescuer starts looking for ways to manage our uncomfortable feelings. We reach for the cookie. We reach for an extra glass of wine to numb down, to rescue us from uncomfortable feelings when that dynamic is set up. So, that's how I began this path of reflecting on myself, what I do, and calls that in the book. And we see Sophia as she wrestles with this Mm -hmm. inner drama triangle, how she does it for herself. And that's really new. We haven't had, that's right. We haven't really bringing to life the inner drama triangle and the inner Ted. Mm -hmm. And we see and hear how Sophia learns to apply some practices to help her catch that, catch and correct 
right. that inner DDT and move into the empowerment dynamic is a big well, part of the book and the story. It is. And there are practices woven all throughout the book as well. So I had, you know, you have several phrases, catch and correct, notice and name. Do you want to convince or connect? Uh-huh. So there are many things that are kind of really labels or just really easy things to remember. So yes. maybe I'm hoping that we can uh, walk away with some practices today. Yes. And before we hit record here, I had asked you what you felt, you know, the core practices would be. And one of Mm -hmm. the ones that you suggested is notice and name. Yes. And I think this is such a powerful practice. So let's just start there. Yes. So what I tried to do, again, with working with this work for 15 years is how might I offer some practices, some coaching tips that Sophia offers to her very headstrong client that is not sure at all that she wants to be coached. She thinks everybody else needs to be fixed. So in in the uh, developmental psychology world, I very purposely developed her. Her name was RJ. With an expert mentality. She had very black and white thinking, didn't she? That's the way she saw the world. And so one of the practices that uh, Sophia asks her to do after Sophia shares with her the, the drama triangle roles And it's a bit of an epiphany to have RJ, wow, wow, once she started naming them and noticing them, how she saw them everywhere. And she uses, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. And so RJ took it on, really embraced it to use an app to take some notes. And that when she saw a drama role show up with her nephews and nieces at home one night or uh, in the office, the exercise that Sophia invited her to do is just to name it. Oh, I think I see a persecutor. So first you have to notice it, which wakes up the ability to observe rather than just keep moving and not seeing. Really stop and observe, notice it, and then name it. And then if she wanted to describe a little bit more in that practice of of what was happening that made her um, name it as a persecutor or Mm -hmm. as a rescuer. And that alone, that exercise, the simplicity of that exercise really woke up RJ uh, to seeing it everywhere, which is, why do we do that as a coach? We want to help normalize the seeing that this is a default way of the way we human beings go through life when we're uncomfortable with something, mm-hmm. we don't like the way we've decided the way life should be. And so the power in noticing and naming, it really comes alive in the dialogue. It, it really does. <laughs> and um, the notice and naming, I find that if people really take on this practice, when I take on the practice, I start noticing, and Donna, you know that how I'm centered I am on the somatic or the, the embodiment mm-hmm. of these that we'll notice when our heart rate goes up or when we hold our breath or for me clenching my jaw. And so actually yes. kind of starting to notice like my cues or my clues that I've been triggered because if I've been triggered and I'm feeling reactive, mm-hmm. I'm somewhere in that drama triangle and I find myself there every single day. Just the, the noticing and naming 
sometimes there's not anything you need to do. Oh, yes. there I am again. And I don't need to do anything different. I probably will take a different action uh, rather than if I had just stayed on that same path and kept going. But it's just a great exercise. We, we just get really familiar with ourselves. We really do. And, you know, there's something else that's more powerful, I think, that's going underneath this that I wanted to tap into. Now that we're talking about it because both of us really love developmental psychology mm-hmm. and the subject object Uh, characteristic that can happen. So, when we notice and name something, we're now able to see it and hold it in our hand and go, oh, look at that. We're not as meshed into it. So, we're not subject to it. And so, it's really a powerful psychodynamic thing that's going on that allows us to have it and not be it. And when we can do that, our coherence, our heart, our body starts calming down. If we can't do that, we are we are that. Yes. And then it has us. And yes. then our emotions, amygdala hijack takes us over. So the noticing and naming is a very powerful, and hopefully that simplicity of that alliteration really allows those that are listening and the readers of the book to develop it as an ongoing practice. Mm-hmm. And Donna, do you think, because I know we want to talk about the tell three stories, mm-hmm. is that for you, like the second part. So let's notice and name first. And then once we've separated ourselves, so we we see this as an object, then we can tell three stories about it. Am I yeah. understanding that correctly? Well, change is unique for every person. So I wouldn't necessarily yeah. say do this, then <laughs> you'll do one that. Way. In the story, the tell three stories comes first. And that's because Sophia really uh, heard how opinionated RJ was. She had a particular complaint about one of her direct reports that she would just not let go of. And the idea of tell three stories, Sophia asks RJ to um, come back between one coaching session and the second and to come up with three other possibilities, three other stories about what could be going on with this gentleman that's part of her direct report. RJ, is that is so foreign to her that she doesn't even have a clue of what Sophia is <laughs> talking about. So, Sophia suggests, you know, maybe he's doing this. Maybe he's got this going on in his life that you don't know about. And so, with a little bit of prompting, RJ says, okay, I'll try it. And she comes back in the next coaching session. And she has done a pretty good job of making up. They don't have to be true. It's just you're making it up. And what is the impact of that? Why would that be a core practice that I want to offer here? Is that when we're really stuck and attached to a particular point of view, we are constricted in our bodies. We're constricted. Mm -hmm. Our minds are absolutely constricted. And we are totally lost to the creativity of any other possibility. So, we literally must broaden our perspective. That's really hard to do when we're stuck in one perspective. But the practice of the possibility of telling three stories, RJ found, wow, maybe there's even more going on here than I realize. It begins to soften her approach to her deep attachments to the way the world works. And so, in the story, as she began to do that, then Sophia sees, sees the opening to offer what might else you notice? Uh-huh. What else might you name? And it really begins to thaw RJ's heart 
for being so intensely driven. And uh, of course, there's a lot more to the story about how she inherits from three generations, inherits a large construction company, and how much she felt victimized to her family story. And she starts waking up to that, and then everything starts to change. Yeah, I think I'm giving away part of the story, but uh, that's okay. The point point is, we're kind of all on that journey of thawing our attachments and waking up. I want to get a little bit more specific on the tell three stories. So we talked about noticing and naming, but if you were to give a practice to someone, do you actually have them like write it down in a journal or how how do you suggest that people engage in the tell three stories? Yes. Well, any of these practices, I would say, are under the heading of have a more contemplative approach to life, Mm -hmm. to slow down. I mean, out there, mindfulness is a huge part of the world now. And I don't use the word mindfulness. I use contemplative practices. And what does that mean? That means how do we self-reflect? How do we slow ourselves down so that we can go inward and observe and reflect? So the first thing I would say, Leanne, is do you have that desire? Do you actually want to slow down? Do you have enough suffering in your life that your high speed, constant on, super, super fast thinking device to device to device mind and lifestyle? Is that working for you? If it is, then you may not even have an intention to want to be different. Who do you want to be in this life? If you're noticing that there's something stirring in you, that something's not quite right, that there is this longing, this largeness that you're sensing inside of you that wants to be nurtured, if you have that longing, then set your intention to what might be some simple ways to begin to start being more reflective. And frankly, the first one I would offer is deep breathing. Learn throughout the day, and I call it the three breath break, as Sophia teaches it to RJ, is to learn to take less than a minute and deep breathing. In less than a minute, you can calm your reactive neurology. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, you'll begin to want more of it would be what I would expect. Uh, Those readers and listeners want more of that because it feels good to calm down and to have more of a heart coherence in uh, your journey Mm -hmm. to listen to the largeness that wants to come forth that's in you. So I hope I addressed, I didn't speak right to the question of tell three stories, but I think there's work to be done before you even get to that point. Uh, I agree. And I think that um, a practice like that, first of all, you know, we come factory loaded with an ability to breathe. So we don't need any extra devices. We don't need anything. Although sometimes it does help to have something pop up that reminds us to breathe like our, you know, Apple watches and phones sometimes do. But I think it's important too, Donna, that we all have that practice. And I just spoke to a client about this maybe Thursday of last week, that doing the practice throughout the day just that take three breaths throughout mm-hmm. the day so that when you need it, when you find yourself triggered or reactive or overwhelmed, 
that it's very easy that the breath actually can do that for you more easily. So the more that you practice, just like anything else, like no one goes on to walks onto the stage or a playing field without having done any practice. So so true. Those three breaths are a way to do that throughout the day. And then when you find yourself getting triggered, you just go, okay, I'll take three deep breaths. That's exactly right. And we can see what happens uh, to our nervous system. Yes. When we and do we, that. And we know from our brain study now, the very simple studies of what wires together, fires together, excuse me, what fires together, wires together, and, you know, reminding our body that that breath uh, immediately can accelerate our calmness uh, happens. It's just like reps at the gym. So true. So I would, I would ask and challenge those listeners that are leaders, our coaches, do you start your meetings do you start your staff meeting with, let's take a few moments to breathe together? As a coach, do you start your sessions with, let's take a few moments to pause, reflect, let's take some deep breaths together. Do you, are you comfortable with being that catalyst for others? It's great to do it for yourself, mm-hmm. isn't it? That's where it's got to start. And that's what Sophia learns. It starts with herself, but gradually she starts her sessions with RJ, and it really makes an impact on RJ when RJ's coach, Sophia, is comfortable with that beingness with another. Yes, and I I do often start my sessions with, with that, and sometimes we'll go a little bit longer and kind of do a guided breathing session because we get so, especially in this day and time of Zooming, People can go from one meeting to the other without any break in between, mm-hmm. and we're just not built for that. So, Donna, one of the things that I'm recognizing as you're speaking that all of these practices are also just general well-being practices. So, having a, a, a vision and a purpose or sense of that, being able to take perspective, so this noticing and naming and telling three stories is a well-being practice. The breath is a well-being practice. So I'm just finding that these are so integral to each other that, you know, that our own well-being and our ability to be effective in the world mm-hmm. are really inextricably linked. Well, certainly. And as the world gets more complex and speeds up, I don't know a person that isn't really challenged right now with all kinds of issues, family issues, their own health, uh, the world of business. It's like nothing we've ever seen. And I don't think it's going to slow down. I actually think the world is going to continue to speed up and we're going to experience global challenges, difficulties, traumas, catastrophes in the same moment as they're happening. So how do we create well-being as we face this world? And there is many in the story to do that. That primarily comes from a a coach perspective of how do you coach another to do that? And I would say one of the first things uh, as I work with leaders is that they want to be more coach-like. And we have conversations about what does that mean for them? And I'm a little sad to say, probably the most frequent answer I get to that is that they need to have more answers. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to tell people more ideas about how to fix this or be that. And it's actually the opposite, isn't it? To actually let go of needing to have the answers and to create 
a safe space for others to step into their genius, their creator, their uh, sense of who do they want to be. So for a leader to get comfortable with the idea that they don't know, and that actually we're going to take a few moments in our staff meeting, maybe there's even a conflict that comes up in the meeting. Rather than working harder and telling more, let's take a time out, you all. Let's breathe. Let's calm ourselves mm-hmm. and trust that our wisdom is going to rise if we can calm ourselves. That is still not a common practice for leaders, but that's it's very not, coach-like. And, and you you spend a lot of time in this book, in the, in the final chapters, talking about our own discomfort mm-hmm. and with feelings, with not having answers, yes. and that it is an uncomfortable feeling in our body, it's physically uncomfortable. Yes. Um, and our and our brain also doesn't like open loops. And so we think that giving more answers or telling will make things better because we're uncomfortable when we don't have the answer. And that's we're not correct. Typically that comfortable coaching, like even as I think about many leaders asking me about coaching, it feels wobbly. Like there's not a strong foundation of Uh asking questions for them. And so it feels so uncomfortable that they'll just resort right back to to telling and advising. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things in this book we want to be careful about is not using the dreaded drama triangle and the the move to the empowerment dynamic as a hammer to say, Uh oh, quit complaining, you're just acting like a victim. That is what we call weaponizing the empowerment dynamic. Uh, Because if you think of how someone would say that to you, how you would feel like, oh, you're just acting like a victim. What would that do for us? We would get up on our toes and we would defend ourselves. And you're just like pouring out alcohol, gasoline on the fire of that drama. So learning to be comfortable with, you know, what we say we want, but what we really have is there's always a gap Mm -hmm. and that there's energy in that gap. If we can see that not knowingness as creative impulse, it's the wind and the kite, the face of the kite that helps sail the kite or fly the kite. Can we see that energy and that not knowingness as a source of creativity? What that means is we have to sort out our relationship to that uncomfortable feelings in our mind and in our heart and our body. And that's one of the ways I teach and use the drama triangle. When you get uncomfortable in that gap between what you say you want and where you are, you know, do you tend to feel victimized and disengage? Do you tend to step in and control? When a lot of leaders say, yes, that's when I take charge. Well, that's, synonymous with a persecuting role or do you tend to just want to please and make everything go okay and say okay you guys i'll just take care of it you know that rescuer when leaders hear this challenge to see how they relate to this uncomfortableness it's a huge epiphany Mm -hmm. and it's a tool to really wake them up and now they can choose do i want to see this uncomfortableness as a source of creativity that is an epiphany for people. How about you? And it's you, counterintuitive. Yes. It's counterintuitive. It is. It, you know, it's it's counterintuitive until 
you get in the middle of it and then it makes perfect sense, <laughs> you know, but at first it doesn't make sense to embrace that. Exactly. And that's part of the last two chapters, the dialogue with Ted, yes. the character who walks with Sophia and helps her understand this, that a, that a painter stands in front of that painting and there's an uncomfortableness usually um, as a writer, I know I get very uncomfortable when I don't have the words, I don't have the mm-hmm. sentence that I want, you know, and I've also learned that that means something's emerging. There's something in me yeah, that's wanting with to it. create yeah. a form uh, out of formlessness. And so learning how to be with this energy is a huge part of the story of what Sophia learns. We hear her dialogue of how she learns to be with the strive she has to be such a contribution in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, she helps RJ with it, but uh, that's really a, a big part of the learning and how it all comes together. How do you, who do you want to be into in the relationship to this creating journey? Yeah, yeah. So Donna, do you want to um, talk a little bit about the, the gifts of the drama triangle? Yes, this is an epiphany that Ted helps Sophia see that if she can do exactly what we're just talking about to rest in this tension, this dynamic tension, if you can learn to be there with your complaints, maybe what you're worried about and what Ted offers is there's always a commitment behind your complaint. And what Sophia realizes is that if she can rest in her reactivity, when she can see how she's reacting to this tension and can stay there with compassion, with appreciation that something's wanting to emerge, Mm -hmm. but it takes a lot to stay with it and not tap it down, not reactive. That's where the gift is. Mm-hmm. Because on the other side of a complaint, you, you wouldn't be complaining about something if you unless didn't you care about, about it. Right. Yes, yeah. unless there was something wanting to yeah. emerge. If you can set with it, breathe, journal, walk, talk with a friend, and be with it, I almost guarantee there'll become a new awareness and an epiphany. And that's the gift in your reactivity mm-hmm. that can guide you to a whole, you can get on the other side of it. But if you go too soon, if you're not willing to see that as a gift, it can really interrupt the creative process. Yeah. Can you give an example, and maybe it's just even one from the book, um, Donna, of what a complaint to commitment might look like? Mm. Yes. Well, let's see. I just had a fellow help uh, in a coaching call. He was saying, Don, I think I understand these ideas. This is great. I really am getting it. But but I don't make problems out of a lot of things. For example, he said, my two daughters were playing out in the front yard and a neighbor was walking by with their dog and their dog just pooped in my front yard. Now, I didn't make that a problem. I was just really nice. They went on and I picked it up. And as we talked about it, he was seething. Uh (laughs) He had covered up how much he was complaining. First of all, the dog, but the main thing was the neighbor that didn't clean it up. That's a pretty big complaint. Your two daughters are there playing. Yeah. 
So what he got in touch with, Leanne, is, is that the commitment behind his complaint was to have a safe place where his daughters could play. And that simplicity of that desired outcome allowed him to speak to the neighbor and say, you know, I'm really engaged in my young two daughters having a safe place. And I love your dog. And please pick up the poop in our front yard. He was able to get to the outcome he wanted through his complaining in a way that allowed his beingness to be very centered on that outcome, yes. not without blame and judgment. I thought it was a beautiful example of paying I attention to I think it is a beautiful complaint. example. It's very simple and that he was proud of himself for the way he handled it, but he really didn't address the real no. issue. He was nice. He was and nice. He just said, I'll, I'll just uh, pick this up myself and we'll all be fine. And what, what role is that in the drama triangle? <laughs> well, I would say that's the rescuer. Absolutely. It's the you rescuer. Know, so, oh, I'll take care of it. Yeah, I'm not going to see And he rescued himself. Yes. I think for, from not having the conversation, he rescued his daughters because they don't have, yes. they don't have to watch out for the poop in the yard. Now. But he also, um, the, the other way that he rescued himself, or maybe he felt like he was rescuing the neighbor by not yes. causing conflict with the neighbor. So that's the other thing that I realize is that um, these, all of the roles have multiple levels. And it could be that he was mostly rescuing himself from not having those feelings. Exactly. Be, by covering up and being nice and getting along. Yes. And I know that one well. I'm a recovering rescuer. <laughs> yeah. But then he comes to the coaching call and he tells me the story as though, hey, there's no problem. I don't make things into problems. Yeah. <laughs> but as we unpacked it, he, he had a seething complaint. Yeah. That he had tapped down. Yeah. And as he brought it forward and we looked at the complaint, I said, okay, what's your commitment? What's the outcome you want that's on the other side of your complaint? And he was and, surprised and that it was as simple as I want to, I want my daughters to be safe. Right, oh, right. well, now we care about that. And so he was able, his beingness and the way he was able to speak to what he wanted really became that creator, challenger, and coach. Yes. And someone else's commitment mm -hmm. could have been different. It may not be yours at all. And that's a big part of the framework of how we teach. Yeah. So I think knowing um, and kind of um, stepping back and getting that broader perspective, it's just not that I want my neighbor to do what I want them to do. He had a bigger commitment for his daughters. Now, I don't have daughters playing in my front yard. I would have a different commitment. Um, for not wanting a dog, my neighbor's dog, to, to poop in my yard. Yes. You know, so my commitment would be different. But regardless, it's important to figure out, you know, what is it that bothers us about this? What is it that I want? And then when we speak from that, it's much easier to have a conversation with someone when we've got that deeper commitment in mind versus I just want you to do things differently. Much different. And that's where we have authentic, courageous conversations mm -hmm. because yeah. we're so clear about our intent. And that's why I love this framework and teaching this work to coaches on how to apply this process and this frameworks and insights and tools that we've been talking about to help uh, someone really come to that with a fair amount of speed mm -hmm of what they really cared about. And that's why we call it 
the empowerment dynamic. <laughs> it is because so it really empowered him to take charge of and not yes. sit there and seethe and make ourselves sick because you know we're in a rescuing, pleasing, or persecuting victimy mentality in our life that activates the amygdala that activates inflammation in our bodies. Mm. And that's why our tagline is experience the freedom. Yeah. Experience the freedom of the empowerment dynamic. Love that. Love that. Donna, you just alluded to when you train coaches. Mm. Why don't we just go ahead and talk about, I know that you've got a training coming up for coaches. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I've been uh, working with coaches for almost 10 years and I'm kicking off the deepest, uh, I would say most profound course that I've ever helped facilitate. I have a faculty and co-facilitators and we kick it off March 17th. Uh, it's uh, going to be a May 17th. Oh, did I say March? Yes. As yes. an M word, May 17th. <laughs> I'm going to keep it to fewer than 20 and we have one or two spots left and it's called Living your creator essence. And we're going to start right off. Do you actually believe? Mm. Do you firmly believe in your innate creator essence? And do you believe and know that is imbued in every other living being? Because if we don't know that first, we're going to show up as coaches and leaders attempting to fix the hole in ourselves mm -hmm or everyone else's, which triggers our rescuing, persecuting, victimy mentality. Yeah. So, um, Donna at Power of Ted could email me if you're interested in that or go to Center for Empowerment Dynamic. Okay. Com. And I will put all of those um, links in the show notes. And as we're closing here, I want to just go over, and not in detail, but just the name, the practices. We had notice and name. We had tell three stories. We talked about breathing as a core practice. And then we also talked about this, maybe from complaint to commitment, like doing, maybe we do journaling or we talk to someone and mm -hmm. find out whenever we're, we have a complaint to investigate what's the commitment underneath that complaint. Yes. And another phrase is a catch and correct. And when we catch ourselves, just redirect, not, you know, I like the correct because it's alliteration. So we, we don't want to correct ourselves from a point of reference that we did something wrong. We want to redirect our framework. And so another one of the skills that really gets elaborated in the conversation is how to reframe from problems to outcome. Mm. You know, the the story of the gentleman in the front yard with a dog, really what we're doing there as coaches, we're helping him to get committed to what he cares about, the outcome, rather than the problem. Oh, the problem is I have a neighbor who doesn't clean up their dog. You know, and so that's a big part, uh, learning to reframe in the book. And then the other thing I would say is really powerful is dynamic tension. Mm -hmm. This thing that we created, that we talked about earlier, is understanding there's always a gap between what we want, telling the truth of where we really are. There's an energetic gap. How do we leverage that mm -hmm. one step at a time, baby steps? But that that's a big part of one of the chapters that I've had other coaches tell me is really powerful for them yes. that we have not spoken to in our other books. 
Yeah. Well, and I'm finding that many of the conversations that I'm in with some other folks as well, that they're catching on this idea of eustress and distress mm. uh, is also gaining traction. Whereas the distress would be when we say stress, we're typically talking about the distress, you know, when we feel, quote, stressed out or burnt out or whatever. Eustress is when we get like there's a gap. Anytime we set a goal, Anytime we take on a new position, there's something that we're committed to bringing about. Mm-hmm. And, and because we're not there, that creates a tension too, but it's the kind of tension that moves us forward, that's mm-hmm. exciting and that's ex- inspiring for us. Anybody who's ever created anything great, whether it's athletics or performance, there's always another level that they're trying to get to. And why? And that can because be we care about it. Because we care about it. And that's exciting. It. It's stress, it's tension, but it's the positive kind. So, not all stress is bad. So, it's a really, we have to have that in order to move forward. Absolutely. And uh, that's the creative zone. Um, and, it's, and that's why, again, why I love this framework, because uh, the drama triangle rules, when I ask people, how are they relating to that stress? They usually, uh, by applying, do I, you feel victim, persecutor, or rescuer to that stress? That helps them tease out and have an, a more thorough understanding of the relationship. If they can see it through the lens of, oh, it feels like creator energy. I'm, I'm so challenged by it. I can't wait to learn. And boy, I'm inquiring about what do I need to do now that helps you to know where you are in that continuum of how you're relating to that stress. Yeah. Yeah. People will say, I'm feeling, I'm feeling stretched. Like I feel like this is, you know, this is more yeah. than I've ever done, but it, but it's exciting. Yeah, very so exciting. I have, I have a friend who has dropped the word overwhelm in her life. Uh-huh. She now only uses the word, boy, I'm whelmed. <laughs> I'm whelmed. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. Donna, I knew that this was going to be enlivening and enlightening today. And again, I just loved the book. And I really want to recommend folks to pick up the book. If you're a person who likes audiobooks, I do a lot of walking. I'm on the, in the gym. And this particular book was so engaging. I really mm-hmm. did feel like I was sitting down with a few friends and we were talking about work and we were talking about what we were learning and how we keep bumping into our own mm-hmm. selves and our own, ah, that's, you know, that's still there for me. But I felt that way. Oh, um, lovely. So I felt that way. And I also really enjoyed how you brought in um, nature. Mm, yes. Walking in nature was also a big part of it. A big part of and it. And Sophia's reflections, like taking time to go to go for a walk or to go to her favorite cafe to sit and eat. And then mm-hmm. that's when some ahas came. Exactly. In the artist way, they also call that an artist date. So it, you don't have to take big, long vacations. Just these, you know, these breaks where you really just get to reflect, go to your favorite gallery, and that's what RJ does. And all of those ways that we have to resource ourselves and to bring in new mm-hmm. information are really important. And you wove that through the book as well. well I just you. thought it was very masterful. Well, I so appreciate that. And, and uh, I believe, you know, live on Bainbridge Island, which is right off of downtown Seattle. So I took those walks and the characters talked to me. 
and uh, helped me immensely. And I saw that heron. I saw those eagles uh, that uh, I write about that are teaching animals or teaching experiences. Let me put it that way. They were teaching experiences that... um, I appreciate you you calling out. It felt very soothing to write uh, from, from nature. But I live here in, in nature's everywhere, so yeah, very present. Yeah. Well, I could picture myself in all of those settings and all of the conversations. So, mm. bravo, congratulations, and the best of luck in training coaches and getting more people out there to spread this good work. It's yes, really, really amazing. I'm really dedicated to bringing uh, coaching with the empowerment dynamic to the world as a process, as a framework uh, that accelerates um, both the coaches' awareness of how they're coaching in the moment, as well as frameworks and tips of how to bring uh, their clients into um, a very powerful empowerment framework. And I love that you liked the audio. I interviewed a number of actresses and was very happy with her voice Mm -hmm. and how she subtly was able to really, not in a big way, but very subtle. You knew who was talking and it it, uh, really pleases me to hear that that was satisfying to you. Well, it was satisfying. It was, it was very effective and I'm just so happy for you. It's Mm. really a nice offer. And I, and I want to say too, Donna, that although this is written from a coach perspective, I don't think that this is a book just for coaches. I yes, think. I know. I'm hearing that more and more. And and, and again, that was another co-outcome um, for me yeah. um, to um, have very personal epiphanies for themselves. And yeah. Leaders that are reading it are saying, wow, okay, now I'm starting to understand more about what you mean to be more coach-like as who I am as a leader. So, I'm glad to to hear that. And the reflections by Sophia really, I think, are instructional for uh, reflections for us. So, as she was learning and reflecting, I was um, on the journey with her. And that's for anyone. That doesn't need to be for a coach. It can Mm -hmm. be for anyone who's committed to learning so, well, thank you. Yeah, I've so lived welcome. a few decades now, so um, <laughs> I've just pulled in lots of different experiences and, and my own heart desires for uh, being a catalyst for transformation of the world. We're at a crossroads and we, are. we must bring our wise innate self to every conversation so that we can imbue um, ourselves, our own lives, and to our best selves, not our reactive selves. We're still going to be reactive, but we can catch it sooner and transform it faster. I think that's a perfect place to end. Mm. Thank you again, Donna. Thank you, Leanne. Blessings to you for your good work. (laughs) Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world.